You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually, we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com slash MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com national editor Matt Myers. On today's show, we're going to reminisce about a couple of our all-time favorite pitching performances. And the reason this topic came up for us today is that today... May 6th is the 22nd anniversary of Kerry Wood striking out 20 Houston Astros at the raw age of 20 years old. It is inarguably one of the greatest all-time pitching performances, as Baseball Reference tweeted out earlier today. By game score, it is the best game by a pitcher in the last 40 years. Game score, if you're not familiar with it, is a stat created by Bill James that gives varying amounts of points to uh, each strikeout, you subtract points for each hit and walk, you get extra points for each out recorded or each inning after the fourth frame, etc., etc. So, Kerry Woods, number of 105, the highest score of the last 40 years, and that is a fun memory to look back upon, and it really made us think about a couple of our favorite all-time pitching performances, but before we get into that list, Matt, I know that you, uh, kind of off the air earlier today, had pointed out to me that there's a game we just don't talk about enough, and by we, I mean all of baseball, which one were you talking about? Well, the, the reason it came up is because, you know, as, as you know, you mentioned before that um, Woods game has the highest game score in the last 20 years, right? But of course... Uh, 40 years. The last 40 years, but of course, the, in actuality, it is the highest ever nine-inning game score, right? Because a lot of the ones that... It's the highest um, nine-inning nine game score ever, right? The reason there were games that were higher more than 40 years ago is because there was a time when pitchers would regularly pitch more than nine innings. So like you would, I mean, these were still well-pitched games, but they weren't as dominant as, as Kerry Woods, right? There were games where, you know, you hear these legendary stories of like, you know, Marischal versus Spahn and going, you know, a 16 inning pitching duel, that kind of thing. And you kind of like accumulate the game score with, with the extra outs. But as part of that conversation, one of our, um, one of our uh, researchers, Jason Catania pointed out to me, he's like, you know, why don't people talk more about, the actual single game strikeout record, which is 21 
strikeouts in a game by Tom Chaney. The thing is, Tom Chaney did it in a 16-inning start, so it's kind of not as doesn't have as, as much cachet as you know Kerry Wood and Max Scherzer and Roger Clemens twice, and I guess Randy Johnson did it too. I don't know. Maybe he did maybe he did it in a 10 inning game. Anyway, um, point being that like the actual record for strikeouts in a game is not 20; it's 21. It just happened in 16 innings, and it was done by a man named Tom Chaney, who many of you have probably never heard of. Yeah, Tom Chaney uh, struck out 21 hitters on September 12th, 1962. I have to say, I stared at this box score for a good three minutes, and this is fueled by, you know, just exhaustion and depression and everything. Trying to figure out uh, Washington at Baltimore, because it's weird now to see that as not an interleague game, but of course there was, you know, the 11 or so year period in the 1960s, where the Washington Senators and Baltimore Orioles were both members of the American League. And Tom Chaney did pitch for the Washington Senators. He threw 228 pitches in that game. 228 pitches. I was looking up this game earlier tonight on the uh, Sabre website, and there's a great quote there that says, Chaney threw 228 pitches fueled by adrenaline and chain smoking between innings. That game, he must have gone through three packs of cigarettes, recalled teammate Chuck Hinton. I'm not sure which number is more out of place in today's game, three packs of cigarettes or 228 pitches. Uh, either way, I think it's safe to say you will never, ever see that again. Now, he got off to a great start the next year. Uh, it was fantastic through his first five games or so and then got hurt later in his life, apparently. And this is relayed by his daughter. Uh, he blames that game for ruining his career. 228 pitches and three packs of smokes. Maybe so. Um, I, I don't think you were ever going to see, I guess I should have looked this up. I don't know if this was the most recent longest game, you know, like longest of 16 innings. And it is funny that if you you know go back and look, it took them that long because it was a, it was a two to one game. Like his teammates were giving him absolutely no support whatsoever. And there was a pretty fun quote from Boob Powell, um, who was pitching, uh, who was hitting for Baltimore that day. And he's like, I know I'm not going to get anything off this guy. But I want to be the only guy who doesn't strike out. So I'm going to choke it up. I'm going to go all butcher boy. And he did. He was the only one who didn't strike out. There were one, two, three, four, five other guys who struck out three times, including the relief pitcher, Dick Hall, who entered in the eighth inning. He struck out three times. 16 inning games are super weird. <laughs> there's, there's a lot going on in this box score. It's, um, the attendance was uh, 4,098 people. Um, game Time of game was three hours and 59 minutes. That's why going <laughs> 16 innings, Tom Chaney, 16 innings pitched, scatters 10 hits, one run allowed, four walks, 21 strikeouts. Game score of 115. So he had even, as speaks to my earlier point, even he had a higher game score than Kerry Wood by virtue of, you know, getting uh, another 21 additional outs than than Kerry Wood. Kerry Wood got, which just sounds silly as it just, you know, just, it sounds silly just to say it. It, you you would think that, you know, like I said, he, through his daughter, kind of blamed that game for ending his career. And you would sort of think like, okay, right after that, he was cooked. He was toast. But this game was in September of that year. And early the next year, he was so outstanding. The first four games of the following season, he threw 36 innings and he had 38 strikeouts, five walks, and one earned run. An OBP against of 156. That is I mean, it's four games. I get it. But that is like Hall of Fame level performance. Um, and then he struggled and then he got hurt. And it was basically that. But he will always have an all time record of 21 strikeouts. Do you think anyone can top 21 strikeouts? It is true that strikeouts 
are much more prevalent in baseball now than they were obviously ever, but certainly then I'm, I'm leaning towards no, just because I don't know that you can actually get 21 out of 27. And I don't know that anyone's going to go 10, 11, 12 innings. I mean, it's, it's certainly not, I think, I think 21 is within reach 22, however, breaking that record, um, that seems like it's, it's, um, there's just like only so many outs you can get in the game. Right. But I mean, Scherzer got, Scherzer got to, um, to 20, a couple of years ago. And I think he only struck out two guys in the ninth. So I think he actually going into the ninth had a chance for, for, um, Four twenty-one, if I recall correctly, um, I'm not live fact checking myself right now. But anyway, um, Tom Cheney maybe should be more famous for his uh, his one ridiculous <laughs> start. He had he had 147 strikeouts that year in 173 innings, it, all of which came one. in that game. Exactly. As, as I remember, it, it's one of the things I really do love about baseball is that you can be a guy who is generally forgotten and lost to history, and still have this one incredible shining moment that no one is ever really going to be able to replicate. Like that's, that is cool to me. So, you know, this sort of motivated us uh, a little bit to trying to get to some of our own favorite games. And um, we went through. So all that really made us think about some of our own favorite pitching performances. Some of these we saw in person, many of them we did not. I wouldn't say all of them are necessarily good. They are not all even in the major leagues, but I think this is a, just a pretty fun list of games for a variety of reasons and, and matt i would love for you to go first which one do you want to start with um i'll there's a mix here um there's these are just some i just off the top of my head that jumped out to me that many of which i saw in person many of which i just remember from watching on tv i watched all of these in some form but um the one i'll start with is actually probably the most famous of the games on my list of favorite pitching performances which is um Derek Lowe in game seven of the 2004 ALCS. And I mentioned it because he started on two days rest. This was the, this is the Red Sox come back from three uh, or down against the Yankees. And what happened was because there was a rain, there was a rain out at some point in the series. So everything got pushed back. So it ended up being that like they played on, they ended up playing on five straight days. They played on October 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th and 20th. Right. So, the Red Sox had a very thin rotation at that time. So they ended up when they came back, which was sort of like unexpected, they ended up having to bring back Derek Lowe, who started um, game four, the the first game of the comeback uh, on October 17th. And then he came back and pitched, started game seven on October 20th on two days rest. And he was great. (laughs) He pitched, uh, you know, he went up, went up against Kevin Brown and got shelled. It was a blowout for the Red Sox. But you know, going in, it was like, oh, Derek Lowe, you know, maybe he'll give them like, you know, nine outs at best. He pitched six innings, um, uh, one hit allowed, one run allowed. Classic Derek Lowe sinker baller. He had uh, 13 ground ball outs and three fly ball outs. And, you know, it's kind of funny because um, there's always been that like narrative about sinker ballers in the playoffs when they start. You know, granted, there aren't as many sinker ballers as there used to be. That was like, oh, well, you know, sometimes a short rest might help the sinker because it'll just get a little more like, maybe they'll get some more like natural dive that way. Um, and a few years ago, I found this when uh, researching this game, David Lorila uh, on Fangraphs did a Q&A with Derek Lowe and he asked him that question. He said, did pitching on two days rest help your sinker? And Lowe Lo, Lo, Lo replied, I don't believe in that. I would much rather pitch at full strength. You still need your legs under you and you still need your arm in the right arm slot. If you get too tired, your ball doesn't move anymore. I promise you. They should do that on that show, Mythbusters, because it's not true. 
So I guess Derek, Derek Lowe just, you know, putting to rest the idea that sinker ballers benefit from pitching on short rest, but he still pitched an amazing game. Um, and uh, it just always stuck with me that it just, it was a two, two days, you know, most, most time, most, most of the time in the postseason, it's like, Oh, three days rest, big deal. And he comes in on two days rest and pitches, uh, pitches, maybe not the game of his life, but blew away any realistic expectations to complete the, um, come back from three, nothing for the, uh, for the Red Sox, kind of an unsung hero of that series in my mind, considering how he pitched in game four, started game four and game seven. Yeah. Also, cause this was the year he was actually pretty bad. Uh, he had this weird career trajectory where he, with Jason Veritek was part of that all time heist Heathcliff Slocum trade. And then he was kind of a middle reliever. And then sort of randomly, he became like an ACE closer for like two or three years. And then in 2002, he was a fantastic starter. He actually finished third in the Cy Young, you know, 21 wins, 258 ERA. And he was okay in, in 2003. And then in 2004, uh, 542 ERA gave up 11 hits per nine. Um, he was kind of like an afterthought, but you, as you said, they had, you know, some rotation issues and, uh, you know, he didn't even start in the ALDS at all. And he was pretty good in game four. And it just said excellent in game seven. And don't forget in game four of the World Series, seven shutout innings. And after that really lousy year that kind of parlayed him into what i think was like a four-year contract from the dodgers three or four years where he ended up you know not being an ace but this reliable like 200 inning slightly above average league starter and then he pitched until he was 40 you know it's like one of the weirdest kind of up and down careers for him uh but you know like you said that game which i had forgotten was such a blowout six nothing in the first two innings against kevin brown who i've always sort of considered to be one of the more underrated pitchers ever um, not then, I guess. <laughs> no, not, not not then. All right, Mike. Let's let's go to you. What is one of your uh, give me one of your all time favorite uh, favorite pitch games? I w- I wasn't at this game, but I did watch every pitch of it on TV. I have I have vivid memories of watching this game. This was June eighteenth, twenty fourteen. This is by game score and by the eye test the best pitched game of Clayton Kershaw's career. So right away, that's high praise. Right, the guy's a slam dunk Hall of Famer. This was the best pitch game I think I have ever seen by anyone ever. This was when he no-hit the Rockies. This was when he had 15 strikeouts and zero walks. At the time, it was the only game in the history of baseball where a pitcher had 15 or more strikeouts, allowed zero walks and zero runs. Now, since then, uh, Max Scherzer has also done it too. But this was 2014. This was the year he won the MVP. This was peak Kershaw. Now, I remember it because it was fantastic. I actually wrote about this game. This is what I wrote afterwards, uh, quoting myself. I'm certain I don't have the words to do this justice. How could I? With a full understanding of how hyperbolic this is going to sound, I'm quite sure that's the best game I've ever seen pitched. It's very possibly the best game I will ever see pitched in my entire life. That does sound hyperbolic. But um, like I said, Pete Kershaw, I will say, to be fair, this was a bad Rockies team. They would lose 96 games. And that day, Nolan Arenado had the day off. Cargo didn't know play. that. <laughs> Go ahead. Cargo didn't play, and Justin Morneau didn't play because of the lefties. So this was a lineup. Okay, Tulowitzki was hitting third fine, but the three four five was Tulo, Willen Rosario, Drew Stubbs, uh, DJ LeMay, who hit eighth for some reason. I don't know. The Rockies do a lot of weird things. I hope that's the thing you were about to say. No, I was going to say. Well, we also know how the Rockies on the road. It's kind of a different. Uh, well, right. You know, I think like, like there was a, there was a period where like any Kershaw home start against the Rockies, it was like, okay, no hitter alert. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, I remember this game, obviously, because of the pure dominance for what I consider to be the best moment of what is going to be an inner circle all-time great career. 
But you'll notice I said this was a no-hitter and not a perfect game. I also remember this for the reason it was not a perfect game. That's because Hanley Ramirez made an error, and this was a game where he had absolutely no business being in this game because this was his final year as a shortstop. Never played shortstop after this year, and it was clear even at the time he should not really be playing shortstop. Not only that, it was an 8-0 game. Not only that, he was already banged up. The day before, he had taken a hard-hit ball off his fingers that required x-rays. And actually, it's funny, I wrote about this game before the game too, and Hanley Ramirez had been announced in the starting lineup, and then this is what I wrote. No one believed it, not after the finger injury he sustained. That's not just me being pessimistic. That's Don Mattingly saying he thought that Ramirez was 50-50 to even make it through batting practice, having talked his way into the lineup. And when has a player, particularly an injury-prone one, forcing his way into the game over the best judgment of the manager ever gone wrong? <laughs> now, this didn't cost them the game, obviously, but for what I consider to be like the greatest example of Clayton Kershaw to not be a perfect game because Hanley Ramirez booted a ball in the seventh inning, it's always kind of stuck with me. And as I was doing research for this, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to go back. I want to want to watch some of this game, you know, and um, I watched uh, footage of that error. And I figured once I heard how the Colorado uh, broadcast team described it, it was probably worth a minute for us all to listen to it. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you, based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Here's the 2-1. And that's topped to short. Ramirez throws it away. And the crowd oozes and Oz Dickerson to second. It'll be an error. But there goes the perfect game. And from a shortstop's perspective even though Dickerson runs well and runs everything out full steam that's a pretty easy play it is you're, you're coming in and there's nothing that's unusual about the hop you circled it you looked it in and then you just bury it I mean, that was a bad throw <laughs> and then the next inning he's lifted for defense like it, it is just always stuck with me in ways I'm not proud of So there you go. That's that one. All right. My next one is a game that I actually don't remember the, I remember watching it. I don't remember, the, I'll admit, the, I don't remember the specific instances of that game. I just remember being in awe of it, which is um, Cliff Lee in game three of the 2010 uh, ALCS while pitching for the Rangers. Um, and to me, I think that like Cliff Lee is going to get a little bit forgotten by history i think partially because he had like a weird career where he came up and was good and then he was terrible and went back to the minors and remade his career and then he got traded a bunch um so he's not really necessarily associated with um a team and he only had the very the very brief um 
um, stint with the with the Rangers as kind of like a mercenary before free agency. He was like he was just to give you a rundown. He was traded um, originally traded from the Expos to the Indians in 2002, and then in July 2009 he was traded by the Indians to the Phillies, and then in December he was that December he was traded by the Phillies to the Mariners. And the following July, he was traded by the Mariners to the Rangers before then going back and signing as a free agent with the the Phillies the following um, following offseason. But the thing about Cliff Lee, for me, peak Cliff Lee, I probably enjoyed watching him as much as any pitcher because he had, you know, he had impeccable control and command when he was at his peak, and he had this like fantastic mix where he'd like work this cutter inside and this big looping curveball. And there was just something I found just incredibly aesthetically pleasing and fun about watching him work. And then in the 2010 postseason, the, the Rangers beat the Yankees in the ALCS. And in game three, he goes eight innings, um, strikes out 13 Yankees. Um, and it was just like, this was like the, the Vincent, the vintage cliff with eight innings, two hits, one walk, no runs allowed, 13 strikeouts. And this is like, this is a really good Yankees lineup. It's Jeter, Swisher, Teixeira, A-Rod, Cano, Marcus Thames, eh, Posada, Granderson, Brent Gardner. Um, and it was just, it was, it was, it was something else. It was, uh, in, in that moment at Yankee Stadium, Rangers went 8 nothing. It was just a, just a lights out performance from, from an aesthetic, from an aesthetic perspective, maybe my favorite pitcher ever to watch pitch. It won't surprise you or anybody to know that I'm not a huge believer in, you know, clutch, right? Or like, you know, being a different player in the postseason than you are in the regular season. That said, Cliff Lee may be the most underrated postseason pitcher I can think of. Like, we don't talk about him the way we talk about Madison Bumgarner, right? But Cliff Lee made 11 postseason starts, 89 strikeouts, 10 walks. In that Texas postseason in 2010, he made five starts. And one of the five starts was bad, right? He gave up six earned runs in four and two thirds in the game of one of the World Series. And even with that, in that postseason, five starts, 278 ERA, 47 strikeouts, two walks. And I think that kind of goes back to what you're saying, right? Like, you know, not necessarily overwhelming, dominating stuff, but pound the zone, uh, never kind of give in. I will also say, God, it pains me to realize this is almost a decade ago now. The day that he signed back with the Phillies was like, a top five baseball Twitter day of all time. You know, <laughs> people, so were like, people were like tracking the plane. <laughs> yeah. Everybody thought he was going to go to the Yankees. I think it was. And the ends up back with the Phillies. And that is almost 10 years ago now, which just made me realize how much of my life I have spent looking at Twitter. Anyway, good choice. My next one is going to be uh, a little older. And I can guarantee you that I did not go to this game. And nobody listening went to this game. The best game score of all time is 153 by Joe Eschker. And you're thinking to yourself, I have no idea who that is. Correct. Why would you? Joe Eschker pitched in one of the most interesting games of all time. This came up because uh, it was just five days ago, the 100th anniversary of this game. May 1st, 1920, Boston Braves, Brooklyn Dodgers. Joe Eschker went 26 Bro- Bro- innings. Bro- Brooklyn Robbins, I should correct you. Okay, fine. Yes. <laughs> Joe Eschker went 26 innings in a 1-1 tie. The opposing pitcher for Brooklyn, Leon Cador, 26 innings in a 1-1 tie. It is the most absurd game of all time. My personal connection to this game is this. This game was played in Boston at what was then known as Braves Field, which is where the Boston Braves played until they moved to Milwaukee. After they moved, 
that field was taken over by Boston University, which is where I went to college. And that field then, as now, has become the athletic field. Uh, BU does not have a football team anymore, but when we did, that's where it played. It's used for uh, you know all sorts of outdoor sports. Anyway, there are a ring of dorms around it, West Campus. And in my freshman and sophomore years, I lived in those dorms. And there is a plaque right outside commemorating the, the Boston Braves, but also this game. So every day uh, when I would go to class, I would walk by and I would see this game on the plaque. There's like a million things interesting about this game. But by far the most interesting, yes, more interesting than two starting pitchers throwing 26 innings apiece. 26 innings of baseball were played, three hours and 50 minutes. <laughs> it is a different sport entirely, 100 years and five days ago. That is, that's a good one. That's a good one. I wish I'd been there for that one. I, gotta <laughs> um, I, did, I did some other uh, research on this, by the way. Leon Cadore from the Dodgers paced 96 batters. 96 different different sport entirely <laughs> um well i just said i wish i was at that game next time i go to a game that i was at which happened just a few a couple months before the cliffley name cliffley game i just mentioned which was on august 13th um 2010 at city field uh mets against the phillies and r.a dickey threw a one hitter against <laughs> against the phillies complete game one hitter um the only hit he gave up was against uh, Cole Hamels, the opposing pitcher, um, which was like kind of frustrating, but it was just one of those. It was this was like the first R.A. Dickey year when he like when he came up, like about when the Mets brought him up, they like had him in AAA as like a as depth, and then he had just converted to being a knuckleballer. They brought him up um, in you know, a few weeks into the season because they were like desperate for pitching, and he just like came up and he had been dominant in AAA, and they brought him up, and he was instantly amazing, and you know one of the best pitchers in the league from that point forward that season. And there was just something kind of magical about this, like, you know, this, this knuckleballer coming out of nowhere to becoming a dominant pitcher. And then he was kind of okay in 2011. And then 2012, he won the Cy Young award, which was also kind of an amazing, uh, you know, storybook finish. But in 2010, he was this revelation and, you know, the Mets and Phillies were at the, you know, maybe not the height of their rivalry, but were still very big rivals at that time. The Mets were sort of starting to fade um, with the core of, um, the guys had been on the 2006, 2000, 2008 team. If you look at their lineup that night, it starts out really strong and then drops off pretty quickly. It goes, Jose Reyes, okay. Angel Pagan, okay. David Wright, all right. Carlos Beltran, yes. And then Mike Hessman, Jeff Rancor, Henry Blanco, Ruben Tejada. I will say the only run scored in the game was scored – and Mike Hesman, for those who don't know, Mike Hesman is the alt. He's the the real, like basically the real Crash Davis. He has the minor league home run record. I don't know what the number is. I think it's like three hundred. Four hundred and thirty three in the minors, plus fourteen in the majors, plus seven in in uh, Mexico and Venezuela. So yeah, he's, he he played. He only played a hundred, only one hundred nine games in the majors. Two hundred fifty plate appearances total. So he barely had any time in the majors. But in this game, he had a triple that was the only run, uh, the only triple of his major league career. The only run the Mets um, would score in one nothing game. Cole Hamels also threw a complete game. Uh, time of game two hours and nine minutes. But it was just one of those. I went with uh, my then fiance, now wife, and some friends. Uh, we took like the the ferry. They, they used to have like a ferry, like the Delta shuttle that was from like Lower Manhattan to City Field. It was just like one of those perfect nights at the ballpark, and just like there was just such joy in the park because it was like this R.A. Dickey fairy tale was just kind of going, and 
when I think of like missing being at the ballpark, that's like one of those nights that I, I, I think about because the Mets weren't going going to the playoffs that year. They weren't a particularly good team. They were a 500 team, but it almost didn't matter. It was just like it was a Friday night. Everyone was in a good mood, beautiful summer night. And like when I think of like, oh, I can't wait to get back to the ballpark, I think of think of nights like that. I'm going to improvise a, a game here just because you're talking about Ari Dickey. And I remember uh, for the start of my bachelor party, we went to a Mets Dodgers game and Ari Dickey started and Juan Uribe, who ended up becoming like a Dodger hero, but at the time was like the biggest Dodger villain in history, hit a home run off of Ari Dickey who had come in in relief for some reason. I don't remember much, honestly. Uh, Miguel Batista had gone three innings. I remember... I don't think it was a walk-off. Maybe it was. Oh, I couldn't have been on the road. It was the go-ahead in the ninth inning. That's what it was. And so, of course, me seeing Juan Uribe, who had been just atrocious all year doing that, put me in a very good mood. And then uh, I think I rode the subway back, not with, but like adjacent to Ned Coletti, who was the Dodger general manager at the time. <laughs> I didn't say anything to him. Probably a good idea because, you know, bachelor party. Uh, but he was. And if he ever listens to this, uh, I hope. hopefully he is thankful that I did not go and accost him. On the subway, my my next game is a name that very few people are going to know, but it is one that I have a vivid memory of attending because I was I was thinking about this when we were talking about doing this, and obviously I've been to a ton of baseball games. I just don't have any great memories of being at like this all time great games. Like I don't think I've ever seen a no hitter or perfect game. I've probably seen a shutout, and I think that's maybe because I grew up in the era of some pretty bad baseball, <laughs> like the early '90s Mets after. You know, everybody started leaving from those great 80s teams. Pretty bad. Uh, The early Yankees, 90s Yankees, pretty bad. The early 90s Phillies, you know, before the World Series, eh, not so great. You know, it was like a rough time to be a kid growing up in New Jersey around those three teams. But one game I do remember very well, because I know I went with my grandfather. Sunday, August 9th, 1992, Red Sox at Yankees. This was the last bad Yankees team. The Yankees went 76 and 86 that year. They have not had a losing record since, which I think is one of the more incredible streaks uh, in baseball history. It's been almost three decades. Sam Militello made his major league debut for the uh, for the Yankees. He gave up a single in the second and then mowed the Red Sox down the rest of the way. It looked like he was going to throw a one-hitter in his debut. And I remember, I think I probably had a scorebook with me, and I was very excited about this. And as I looked up earlier tonight, only four pitchers have ever thrown a one-hit shutout in their debut. Three guys you never heard of, and Juan Marichal, which would have been a cool list to be on. Uh, he got lifted after seven, 98 pitches. Steve Farr came in for the save, and that was it. Militello only threw in 11 more games after that. Injuries, his career was basically over. But in his major league debut, for like one shining moment, with 41,125 in attendance, it looked like he was going to be the guy. And I remember just being there at right before my 11th birthday, I suppose, and thinking that was just so cool. It's, it's it's funny you mentioned it because I think because I think probably because of this start, Sam Sam Altello, like in my head was a was kind of a, a part of those Yan- those bad Yankees teams for years. Like in my head, he was like oh, along with like Melito Perez and like Scott Kemen, Tim Leary, like, Tim Lincic, He was just like one of those guys who was like in the rotation for like years. But probably I only put him in that cl- class because he had this start. And like you know, as happens with um, you know Yankees prospects, Mets prospects, like anytime there's like a the slightest hint of like excitement then like it can get blown out of proportion. I'm sure at the time it was like, Oh, here's the next great Yankee A's like one hitter's debut. So like he suddenly like took on like greater meaning in my mind, but I had no idea. I would have, if you had asked me before this podcast, how many games 
did Sam Miltel start for the Yankees? I would have said like a hundred. He started for <laughs> really? like eleven. So. Eleven total. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and like that's the that. thing. This the, is the guy the, that sticks the in my mind. Mysterious. <laughs> um, well, the, my next choice is basically the opposite of Sam Militello, um, which is probably the greatest pitchers duel I've ever I've ever seen in person. Which was um, uh, April tenth, two thousand five, at Turner Field. Um, this was Pedro Martinez versus John Smoltz. At the time, I was living in Durham, North Carolina and uh, working at Baseball America Magazine. And I drove down to stay with my friend in Atlanta for the weekend. And because the Mets were in town, I wanted to go watch them. So we went, this is the, the year they had just, they just signed Pedro and Beltran. And there was a ton of expectation around the team. You know, right in, right come with the previous year, Reyes was, was emerging. Um, there was a ton of excitement and they started the year 0-5. So I went on Saturday night, then they lost their fifth straight game to start the season. And so then it was Sunday, they were 0-5. Pedro, their big their big um, free agent pitching signing, starts the game. And he and John Smoltz just go head-to-head. And it is like both of them at the tops of their game. So the, the final pitching line for Pedro was nine innings. He went the distance, two hits, one run, nine strikeouts, one walk. Smoltz um, was, you know maybe better or certainly more dominant seven and a third he had eight hits but he struck out 15 um and so just the, the two of them just going at it uh all afternoon on like a beautiful day uh in turner field is just something that i will that i will never forget and then in the i think in the eighth the mets blew it open beltron floyd and david wright all homeward which was kind of cool and um and that was that but uh, it was a it was a pretty fantastic afternoon it was basically it was two hall of fame pitchers at the height of the at the height of their games, going going at it, it was the, and and the, the Mets' first win of that season. I'm not sure how you can top that, right? Like Smoltz and Pedro. I, I guess you could, you know, find some, I don't know, Tom Seaver, Warren Spahn, Sandy Koufax kind of matchup situation going on, and maybe it just it becomes very subjective at a certain point. You know, it's also like at what point in their careers and everything. But Smoltz and Pedro, I don't know, are they still peak Smoltz and Pedro in 2005? I guess they are. They're both still pretty good then. Yeah, I mean, Pedro, Pedro basically had one year, his first full year with the Mets where he was still, you know, he was still the guy, he was still, I mean, not, he wasn't 99 Pedro or 2000 Pedro, but he was still like a legitimately dominant pitcher where his like, his starts were events in 2005 for the Mets. And he made, he actually made 31 starts. He had, he led the NL in whip and strikeout walk ratio, 217 innings. Like he was still, he was still legit. And then he just never after that he never topped 130 innings 32 innings in his career again have i ever told you my john smoltz in san diego story i don't think i have but i don't want to repeat myself if i have before i don't think so i don't think so. this is a fun one i especially if you are an employee of petco park my brother lives in san diego now and he first moved out there in you know 2008 2009 whatever and so i went out to visit him and check out the town and he had never been to petco park and neither had i so i said all right well we're going to a game it just so happened it was the first game that John Smoltz pitched after leaving the Braves. Uh, people forget for his final season, he split it between the Cardinals and the Red Sox. And so this was August 23rd of that year, and it was his debut for St. Louis. And somehow he got through five shutout innings. And I say somehow, because even from the cheap, cheap seats, you could see it was entirely based on, I don't know, guile, right? <laughs> Guts, want to. Uh, it was not necessarily stuff at that point in his career. Anyway, it was a very lightly attended game uh, because the Padres were not very good. So we watch from the cheap seats, you know, eight innings or whatever. And I'm like, hey, this park's great. We've never been here before. 
for the final inning, we're going to go down to the bottom and we're going to sit in the lower level. And we're going to really like check this place out. So my brother says, fine. We go downstairs. We uh, sit in the nice seats for maybe three pitches and an usher comes up to us and he's like, can I see your tickets? And we're like, okay, you got us. We, we don't have these, these seats. And he's like, well, I can't let you boys stay here, but you're going to have to come with me. We're like, okay, fine. No problem. You're going to kick us out of the park. He follow. he brings us down to literally the first row, like essentially touching the catcher. And he's like, this is your first time here, right? We're like, yeah. He's like, enjoy the game boys. And I was like, wow. Imagine that happening at Shea stadium or the vet. Or Yankee Stadium. No, they would have thrown you onto the BQE. <laughs> you know, like I think that that was the coolest thing. And you know, that's a that's a nice memory from I don't know whoever Bob from Chula Vista is being the usher in two thousand nine. That's my John Smoltz in San Diego story. That's a pretty good story. <laughs> All right, I'm so excited for my next one. This is um, this is an article I just uh, published a couple of days ago that I had a lot of fun doing. I wrote about the story of George Brunette. Most people don't know about George Burnett. I'm not going to recite it all here because it would probably take an hour, but please go go check it out. The point of me writing about George Burnett, who pitched in the 50s and 60s and 70s, is that this guy, who has just totally forgotten the history, had the most really wildly interesting career. If you include Mexico, he pitched for 33 consecutive seasons into his 50s. He is in the Mexican League Hall of Fame, even though he didn't even get there until he was 39. He wore 15 different uniform numbers, which is tied for the most in Major League history. He never, ever wore a cup or underwear. He was made famous for that in uh, ball four. And and this is uh, the part we're going to get to here. He was part of maybe the worst inning in the history of baseball. I don't know if there's a particular way to quantify that, but once I explain to you this one, I think you'll agree. Clearly, I was not in attendance. This is April 22nd, 1959. The White Sox at the Kansas City athletics entering the seventh inning the athletics were down eight six leaving the seventh inning the athletics were down 19 to six you may think to yourself wow home runs grand slams that's a lot of runs no the white Sox had one hit and it was a single by the time george brunette came in he was the third pitcher of the inning the white Sox had already scored one two three four five six runs i think and he faced eight men and all eight of those plate appearances came with the bases loaded. Here's how George Burnett's eight plate appearances went. Bases loaded walk. Bases loaded walk. Bases loaded hit by pitch. Bases loaded walk. Strikeout. Bases loaded walk. Bases loaded walk. Mercifully, a ground out. <laughs> that is five bases loaded walks plus the hit by pitch. Clearly the most in big league history. The A's in that inning, walked in eight men with the bases loaded. By far the most in big league history, ahead of a couple of teams who had done so five times. I cannot imagine a scenario where that happens today, where the manager doesn't run to the mound and yank this guy. How do you leave this kid in to wear it like that? And also, you know, credit to George Brunet for doing this when he was, you know, 24 years old, I think, and going on to like a long and prosperous career. Eight bases loaded walks! By the team, five for him. It's it's the worst thing I've ever seen. I, I tweeted out this box score. It's in the article or whatever. And it is just, it's like a not safe for work warning. If you were a baseball fan, there's so much bold where bold means run scored on this box score. It's, it's just horrifying. It actually makes me feel better about that story I told a few weeks ago when I pitched in Little League and walked multiple batters <laughs> in the 10-ball right. rule. 
feels, uh, this makes it George, George and I are, we're, uh, we're kindred spirits. So I, guess. I, uh, I, I, uh, I appreciate that. I will, I will close with my, my final uh, pitching best pitching performance memory, which is like a super deep cut of a game I witnessed in person, but we're this far down the robot rabbit hole. I might as well just, you know, go all in on this, which was an actual, actually a college baseball game. Um, the, the two in the spring of 2007, I co- covered a season of college baseball for college sports television. Now CBS college sports, where I basically traveled around the country and went to games everywhere. It was a ton of fun for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, I won't bore you with all the stories, um, but uh, some some a few highlights were um, interviewing Pam Anderson at a Pepperdine baseball game, um, going to a barbecue with David Price uh, at his friend's house, um, and uh, riding the the bus with the Ole Miss baseball team that included uh, Zach Zach Cozart and Lance Lynn. So those are probably the three most uh, three most memorable moments from that spring off the field. On the field, there's one game that sticks out more than ever. It was more than any. It was the super regional between UC Irvine and Wichita State at Wichita State. Uh, June 9th, two thousand seven was game one. Um, super regionals for those unfamiliar in college baseball. Those are basically it's almost kind of like the, the second stage of the NCAA baseball tournament. Um, there are sixteen regionals. The winners of the sixteen regionals play in super in, in sixteen super regionals, or sorry, uh, eight super regionals, and the eight winners go to the college uh, world series. So this was a super regional: Irvine versus Wichita State. Wichita State had been a college baseball powerhouse in the eighties; they kind of faded. So this was a really big. This was their first super regional in a while. Like I'm telling you, they're like there are a lot of places where college baseball is a big deal, but when you go to the few places where college baseball is a big deal, the games are a ton of fun. They're mostly in the SEC and the Big Twelve. Um, or in that, you know, in that part of the country. So Wichita State, I get to the ballpark like two hours before first pitch. There's literally a line of people around the block waiting to get in. They're so excited for this game. So the pitcher for UC Irvine that day was a guy, a, a kid, I should say then, named Scott Gorgon. And when you talk about guile, he, <laughs> he threw a complete game, shutout, on 141 pitches, this was like peak college baseball in every possible way. Nine innings pitched, eight hits allowed, three walks, seven strikeouts, 141 pitches somehow prevented um, Wichita State from scoring. It was just a madhouse. The place was going nuts. It seemed like they had two runners on in every single inning. Could not score. The Wichita State lineup featured a couple of future big leader, le- leaguers, of course, Kind of random. Connor Gillespie, Andy Dirks, um, some names you might remember. But anyway, it's one of those games that just if 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 you had seen that game and had not been a fan of college baseball, it might have made you a fan of college baseball. Because college baseball has its quirks, has its its um, intricacies, and not it's not for everyone. But this was like the game uh, at its uh, at its finest. And then I think he had nothing. I think he threw only changeups and somehow managed. They would not take him out. They would not take him out of the game. Bases ended up loaded, and he still got out of the jam. And uh, Irvine won, won nothing that game, and then they won the next the next day on a walk off double by future Florida Marlin Brian Brian Peterson. Well, I was going to say that I was looking at both these box scores, and I thought I recognized maybe four names, but you just mentioned three of them. Um, I did remember Brian Peterson was a Marlin. Andy Dirks, I think, played for the Tigers. Yep. Connor Glaspie had a famous moment or two for the Giants. I'm going to assume the Matt Morris playing left field is not the Matt Morris, who is a pitcher for the Cardinals. And the final guy 
not super confident about this, but doesn't Dusty Coleman an infielder for the Royals or somebody? I have a vague recollection. Of that. I think Kurt Busby hit the home run in the wildcard game against the Mets. All familiar. The, 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 another great pitch game, the Syndergaard Bumgarner um, wildcard game pitchers duel, where Bumgarner threw a complete game shutout against the Mets, and Syndergaard also did not allow a run. And then I think at the top of the ninth, Familia came in and gave up a three run homer to Connor Glassby. I don't think I have ever attended a college baseball game. And that feels like a big blind spot for me. I mean, it's just, it wasn't a big thing in New Jersey, you know, college baseball growing up where I was. So that was part of it. And my school didn't have a, you know, varsity level baseball team. So that that was that too. Um, But yeah, I feel like it's a big miss. I know that's like college baseball is a kind of a, a warm place in your heart just from, you know, previous jobs you've had. Uh, but I feel like, like, what's the closest good college team to us in New York? St. John's, maybe? Um, St. John, the thing is, they still don't get, I mean, what's weird about college baseball, at least in my experience, um, and it's mostly, I mean, it's mostly based on one, like, full season going around the country. So I've seen, like, I've seen games in, you know, at least I feel like I got a, a, a taste of uh, every conference. Um the thing is, like, even in, you know, St. John's has pretty good programs. UConn for a while had a powerhouse program when they had, like, George Springer and Nick Ahmed. Um, but the atmosphere is re- – even in, like, even in the West Coast where there's, like, dominant programs, even, like, at places like Irvine and UCLA, the, 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 the atmosphere is nothing compared to what you get at a Friday night at Ole Miss or, you know – Oklahoma State or Texas like it's just it just that's really where if you want to get like the really good college baseball experience it's in the SEC and the Big 12 and then like a few other um a few kind of other schools like Wichita State or, or you know and some ACC schools comes in North Carolina but like it's really concentrated in a few places where you get that atmosphere but when you get it it's it's I mean it's it's pretty fun it's like there's just like a, there's just a really good vibe and, and excitement around it that can be um that can be really, um, it's just, it's a, it's a little bit slightly different form of the game. I think that's kind of what's cool about it. I'm going to close with uh, the one connection to college baseball I do have. I just talked about my brother moved to San Diego in 2009. And he at one point said, oh yeah, I got invited to go to a, a college baseball game, you know, San Diego State. Uh, I'm not, I'm not really sure I'm going to go, but you know, maybe I'll check it out. And I looked it up and I saw that Steven Strasburg was starting that night. And I called him and I'm like, I know you don't know who this is. You need to go to this game. I trust me, you will want to go see this. And of course, Strasburg did something insane, you know, like 17 strikeouts and a no hitter or whatever it was. And uh, even just like three weeks ago, my brother was like, hey, remember that time you made me go see Steven Strasburg in college? That was awesome. <laughs> I'm really glad uh, you made me do that. Hey, that was fun. Matt, thanks for going through some uh, ridiculous old games with us. We're going to do some more shows coming up soon. Thank you for listening. This is the MLB.com Stackcast Podcast. Talking about erectile dysfunction isn't easy. Usually we just brush it off or blame ourselves, saying things like, I lost my mojo. Or we avoid it altogether with excuses like, I had a long day at work, or sorry, honey, I'm just not feeling it. But with Roman, it is easy to talk about. With a real healthcare professional who can prescribe real medication, it's simple, safe, and totally discreet. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. Medication is appropriate. Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward, simple, and discreet. 
Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash MLB and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. Complete an online visit today to connect with a healthcare professional and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash MLB today. If approved, you'll get $15 off your first order of ED treatment. Roman is the official partner of Major League Baseball. That's GetRoman.com slash MLB. GetRoman.com slash MLB. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.